Hey, church family. Um, one more thing before we get into today's teaching. Uh, I have some really good family business to discuss. I wish I could do this in person, to be honest, but you know, COVID. Um, this announcement has to do with our eldership. Um, now, many of you know, uh, we are an elder-led church. The elders guide and guard the mission, vision, life, and doctrine of Reality San Francisco and serve under the Lordship of Jesus Christ, who is the chief shepherd of the church. The elders are responsible for the church and have spiritual authority over the church. Eldership at Reality SF is a lifetime appointment. Uh, remaining elders so long as they are qualified, willing, and living in or very, very near San Francisco. Uh, now, we've also expressed uh, a, a couple years ago, a few years ago, our desire that our, our church uh, was to expand our eldership to bring in a good mix of paid and non-paid elders. Uh, bringing on Joe Tucson and Wilson Leong was the first part of that. Today, it brings me so much joy to share with you that we are again hoping to expand our eldership. Our elders, who are myself, Tarek El Ansari, uh, Kevin Cook, Joe Tucson, and Wilson Leong, have unanimously chosen Drew Wilkerson to become an elder here at Reality San Francisco. Uh, Drew and his wife, Heather, have two kids, Phoebe, four, and Luke, 11 months. Um, they had uh, a destination wedding here almost 10 years ago in San Francisco. Uh, it was then they really fell in love with the city and began praying uh, consistently for San Francisco and for many people to come to know Jesus here in this city. And through a lot of prayer and many affirmations from the Lord, they eventually moved to the city uh, in faith, like literally with like what was in their suitcases and in their car. Like, and they visited reality uh, for the first time and they felt this like overwhelming sense of peace and affirmation that this was supposed to be their church home. And uh, through their time as reality, they've grown here, they've served here, um, and they've fallen in love with our, our, our church and, um, and the city. And it's with great excitement that we ask them uh, to, to come on to the eldership. Now, they, uh, Drew and Heather are both real estate agents and like their biggest desire is to see Christians um, own homes in San Francisco and root themselves here as followers of Jesus, living the way of Jesus in San Francisco, which we love as well. So for the last year, Drew has been asked to step into a candidacy process that has included us, uh, including us, or included us, watching his life and character, um, asking him uh, to lead alongside of us in a silent role, observing uh, uh, and also being a part in us, seeing really the fruit of his pastoral work and his family and in our church. And so the reason why you're hearing about this now, we have moved our candidacy process to bring someone in uh, silently for a year and just allow them to embed themselves in us to observe and watch very closely their character and ministry. Um, so it's been a really long process and it's been a whole year. And um, we have now gotten to the step uh, about a month ago, we brought in front of our staff and now we would like to place them before our whole church family, you, as a part of our whole church family. We would like you to pray and we are inviting you, the church, to share any feedback, any encouragement, or even concerns at eldership at realitysf.com regarding Drew before installing him officially as an elder. And so we want you to be a part of this process as well by praying, 
Um, and um, even if you want to um, talk with Drew or even email with him, um, or you want to talk with us, if it's a yes and amen, if, it's, um, if there are concerns, we want to hear all of those things. So we're in a process now of bringing them for the church and hearing any feedback you may have. So we're really excited about this. Thank you for partnering with us in this. And, um, and we can't wait for you to get to know Drew in person as he's been embedded in Life of Our Church for, for some time now. Okay, um, today we begin a, um, well actually we began last week with Francis, he began a series for us called God Forever, where we're looking at, especially in this year, that is an election year, not even election year, but we're like a few weeks away from uh, the election, uh, in the midst of COVID, and in the midst of all these things that seem uh, tumultuous in our world, we're looking at the attributes of God uh, dwelling on that which is fixed and immovable, secure and solid, we're looking at God's attributes in a series that we're calling God Forever. If you have your Bibles, please turn to Isaiah chapter six. Today, I wanna to talk about the holiness of God, how God is holy. Um, and let me read this to you, verses one through six, and then I'll pray for our time this morning. Verse one, in the year that King Uzziah died, I, this is Isaiah, I saw the Lord high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. And above him were seraphim, like angels, each had six wings, and with two wings they covered their faces, and with two wings they covered their feet, and with two they were flying, and they were calling to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and threshold shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried, for I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. And one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with, uh, with tongs from the altar. And with it, he touched my mouth and said, see, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that we would get a sense of your holiness. It's sometimes... Uh, in some ways easier to sense your holiness when we're in a group of people and we're hearing one another say to uh, each other, saying to you, saying in a room, holy, 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 and singing this kind of stuff. But now when it's kind of detached from that and we're in our apartments or in our backyards or in our rooms or houses or whatever, um, it can kind of lose that sense. But Lord, I pray that we would have an encounter with you, like a real one, where you, where you show up um, we're not even told where Isaiah was necessarily. It, it sounds like he was in the temple, but I don't know. He could have been anywhere. He's seen this vision. And so I, I pray that we would get a vision of you and who you are in your holiness. And this would shift our perspective in the way that we might be seeing the world right now. Um, I submit all of my capacities, my mind and my heart to you and I ask that you would speak through me. Um, Lord Jesus, teach us right now. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. I'd like to start um, and open with a, a quote from the mystic writer A.W. Tozer. And I've shared this quote several times over the years, but facing what we're facing in our country um, and in an election year coming up, I think it's important to put this, uh, this passage from A.W. Tozer in front of all of us. 
It says this, he writes this in the, the book, Knowledge of the Holy. He says, we tend by a secret law of the soul to move toward our mental image of God. We were, uh, were we able to extract from any man a complete answer to the question, what comes to mind when you think about God? We might predict with certainty the spiritual future of that person, of that man or woman. See, what Tozer is saying is that what we think about God will have a powerful way of shaping us. It will have a powerful way of shaping uh, how we see ourselves and shaping the way that we see the world. Um, in his words, there's a secret law of our soul that always moves us toward our mental image of God. And that might even be a subconscious mental image of God. For example, if you think God is uh, a great liberator, or maybe that's the, the only way you see God. He's the one who liberates. And, and that attribute of God is like really the only attribute you lean into. God is a liberator. And that's the main attribute you stress in your life or the, the mental image you have of God. This will have profound implications on the way you see every social issue and you will always want to move towards liberation, no matter if it aligns with what the scriptures say or not. You, your mental image of God will want to move towards liberation of everything all the time. If you think God as a warrior only as a God who is at war against his enemies. And every single time you read the scripture, you, read the scriptures, you only see God as like this warrior who wants, to, who wants to battle his enemies and fight. Well, what will happen to you is you will, you will start to be the kind of person that sees the world as us against them. See, our mental image of God has a way of pulling us towards, uh, towards this mental image of God and shaping our lives, shaping our identity, even shaping our future. See, what we think about God uh, doesn't change who God is, and I'll get to that in a second. But what we think about God has profound implications on who we are and who we become. But there's also another problem. Because when we think about God or God's ways, our mental image of God, a lot of times our God and our mental image of God has uh, a strong way or ends up looking a lot like us. Author and New Testament scholar Scott McKnight, who teaches in Chicago, was with our staff a, a couple of years ago, and he told us this really uh, interesting and kind of funny story of how at the beginning of his, his class on Jesus that he teaches, um, how he would hand out two surveys. And the first was uh, a set of questions about the student, like what they like, what they dislike, what they believe, and so on. That was the first survey. And the second survey was the same set of questions, but this time about Jesus. What do you think Jesus likes, dislikes, and believes, and so on? He said that 90% of the time, the answers were exactly the same. See, most of us are shamefully unconscious of how guilty we are of this. We tend to reduce God to uh, reduce God and God's ways to our ways, his thoughts to our thoughts, and even what he's like to what we're like. And let me remind you of this passage from Isaiah 55, if, you, it's, not, if it's not already coming to your mind. God says, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, Neither are my ways or your ways my ways, declares the Lord. He says, as, as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. 
But we're all so guilty of getting this wrong. We think God's love, God loves like we love or the way God's merciful is like the way that you and I are merciful. But what Isaiah sees here in chapter six was not a God who was a better version of himself. God is not just a better version of you. He's not just a better version of me and his ways are not just a better version of our ways. God is other Other, that's what holy means, by the way, other. Again, Tozer, God's holiness is not simply the best we know infinitely bettered. We know nothing like the divine holiness. It stands apart, unique, unapproachable, incomprehensible, and unattainable. This is what Isaiah comes into contact with, the holiness, the otherness, the absolute perfection of who God is. We want to think that God embraces our version of justice or our version of love or our version of sexuality or our version of hate or our version of politics or our version of spirituality, and he doesn't. He's other, he's holy. The call, as Isaiah would see, is to embrace his vision and his version of all of those things. So to summarize, what we think about God is important because it has the power to shape who we are. And at the same time, we all tend to move towards an understanding of God that we make up in our own minds that looks a lot like us, just slightly better. Now, I don't know if you see this or not, but this is the classic double bind. You're stuck. You move towards the mental image of God that you have in your mind and God tends to look a lot like you. Do you see the double bind here? Do you see the problem here? What do we need? How do we get out of this double bind? We need what Isaiah had. We need a revelation of God. We need a true and real encounter with the living God. We need God to say, this is who I am. And that's exactly what's happening in Isaiah 6. Happened to Isaiah, and it's in the scriptures for us to encounter God afresh. Look at verse 1. And the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high, exalted, seated on a throne. Now, this is really important. And the King Uzziah died. This is not just casual information. This is not just a date. On December 4th, that's not what's going on here. King Uzziah was a powerful king, and Judah flourished under his leadership. And not only that, but King Uzziah kept a lot of Judah's enemies at bay because of his powerful leadership. But his death meant the vacancy of the throne, which also meant vulnerability and even the threat of invading armies. So if you lived in Judah, like Isaiah did, in the year that the the king died, that year was a very vulnerable year. And he says that in that year, the year of vulnerability, in that year that the king died, when we felt exposed and under threat of what's next, Isaiah says, in that year, I saw the Lord seated on a throne. Do you get what he's saying? Do you get what I'm trying to say? In the year of COVID, in the year of instability, in the year of our, our nation feeling like it's just on the precipice of what's going to happen next. And we don't know. And it feels, we feel vulnerable uh, financially with work, with what the future, with everything. In the year of vulnerability, in the year, because history kind of tends to do this over and over again, where things get shaky when we don't know what to stand on, when we don't know what's sure and what's secure. God breaks in with revelation. And he says, I'm seated on the throne. 
He's saying in the season of life when it felt like the entire world as, as Isaiah knew it was coming undone and unraveling, God was on the throne. That is, God was still ruling. That God knew what he was doing. King Uzziah might have died, but the throne was still occupied by God. The structure of the opening sentence reveals the reality of every situation, if we just saw it from God's perspective. What this opening sentence is saying to us is that this is the reality of every situation. In the year of COVID, in the year of election, in the year of, of everything going on on social media and exploding in and around all the race. Uh, racial discussion and, and the vulnerability there and the frustration there and the anger there. And, and all in, the, in this year, if we, this, this fit, you can fit anything into this. In the king, year of King Uzziah died, in the year of you at it, in the year of where well, your marriage feels like it's fallen apart, in the year that you lost your child, in the year that you lost your job, in the year that whatever it is that makes you feel vulnerable and unstable and like the world, I don't even know how to stand anymore. If we just saw it from God's perspective, God's on the throne still. Perspective is uh, one of my wife's favorite words. It's the word she gets from the Lord um, when we go through really difficult times. When we go through times where we're like, I, we don't really know how to keep going forward. Um, this is the word that God keeps revealing to her over and over again, perspective. We have to try to see things from the way God sees them. We have to keep asking God for that kind of revelation. Allow me to see things from your perspective. See, right now it might seem like our world is unraveling, but God is still God and he's still working and he's still wanting to reveal himself. And sometimes, sometimes it takes us getting to the place of our deepest vulnerability and even our deepest loss of all that we have securely in this world to truly see God for who he is. To get true perspective, sometimes our world has to shake. And what is the perspective that Isaiah gets? The perspective of God's holiness. Look at verse, the second half of verse one. <clears throat> and the train of his robe filled the temple. That word train, think of it like a, a, a wedding dress with a train, which means the dress is long and flowy and it drags on the ground. Think of like when uh, like a princess gets married and the train like goes from the front of the church to the back of the church, that sort of thing. And at the end of the train was a hymn. At the end of the train, what Isaiah is saying is that hymn at the end of the train of his robe filled the temple. The, the hymn the little part at the end filled the entire temple. Meaning if just the hem of God's garment filled the temple, then how big was the throne that he was sitting on? And how big was the one on that throne? In other words, words fail to describe the greatness of this God. Imagine getting caught up in what happened here. You go into, into in a, in a synagogue or church or temple one day and you get wrapped up in this vision. You, a, a throne, God, the hem of his garment fills the church, just the hem and then these seraphim these, with crazy wings singing to one another and there's smoke and there's an earthquake. What happens when you get caught up into something like that? See, you get perspective of how small you are and how small your problems are 
and you recognize that it's not all about you. You realize that you're not the center of the universe, that you're not even on center stage. And not only should you not be on center stage, in reality, there's no room for you on center stage because the hymn fills the entire temple. There's no room for you. There's no room for anyone else's glory. The hem of God's robe fills a temple. There's no room for you and your glory, only God and his glory. And actually from this moment on, Isaiah moves off the center stage of his own life and he sees the, when he sees the Lord in chapter six, for the rest of the book, he doesn't even really talk about himself. And the train of his robe filled the temple, it says. And above the Lord God, were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings, they covered their faces, and with two, they covered their feet, and with two, they were flying. And they were calling to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is filled with his glory. He sees seraphim, literally uh, what, what seraphim are, 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 quote, the burning ones or the living flames are all around the throne of God. And Isaiah describes these heavenly creatures with a lot of symbolism. With two wings, they flew, meaning they were prompt in their obedient service to God. They were ready to go at any minute. With two wings, they covered their face, meaning they couldn't look at God straight on because God's too holy. Even for them, God was too holy. And with two wings, they covered their feet. They covered themselves. The angels of God in the presence of God thought themselves unworthy. And they kept on saying to each other, to each other, not even to God, to each other. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. They were saying this to one another. And this is not just repetition. This is emphasis. It isn't holy plus holy plus holy. It's God and all his perfection and glory times God and all his perfection and glory times God and all his perfection and glory. Now, what do we learn about God from these heavenly creatures? Notice that they don't praise God because. They don't praise God because he has redeemed them, not because he has loved them, not or shown great mercy to them. At least that's not what they say. Not that that's wrong, but that's not what they say. They're not around the throne of God saying, God is love, 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 or God is grace, 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 or God is powerful, 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 though those are all true. They're not worshiping God because of something God did. They are worshiping God because of who God is, because his essence and nature requires it by all created creatures. Isaiah will later on say that one day there will be so much joy when God redeems the earth that the mountains and the hills will burst into song. All creation will sing and does sing about God. See, sometimes there's a possibility to selfishly love the attributes of God because there's always something in it for us. God is love, he loves me. God is mercy and I need that. God is grace and I need more, more, more of that. God is powerful, well good, I, I can use some power. And God is just and he better be just because, because this world needs to be brought into order. But the reality is for many, the starting point of religion or spirituality is what we get out of it, what we get from the deal. And that doesn't mean that God isn't love and isn't mercy. He is all those things. And we'll talk about them over the course of this series. But the holiness of God is something different. To understand the holiness of God, it starts by worshiping God because he is. 
because he's God and because he's on the throne, but because he's God and I'm not. There was a song that, that we used to sing when I was a young Christian in Bakersfield and I was just growing up. And all these songs really, when you're young, get stuck in your head and you sing them for the rest of your life. When, when I was really young in the faith, um, our church would sing the song uh, that went, uh, just because you are, just because you are, I'll praise you. Just because you are, I'll glorify your name. Just because you are, that's, I don't actually remember the rest of the song. That's basically, for me, that's what, that when I'm in sometimes in just prayer, that song will come to my mind. Not, be, not because, of X, just because you are. I, I pray, just because you are, I love you. Just because you are. That was it. That was Isaiah. That's what these seraphim, that's what Isaiah saw. These seraphim were worshiping God because he's holy. Just because he is. And this brings up another really good point about worship. We should realize that we don't make God anything. We don't make God our savior. We don't make God our authority. We don't make God holy. He is. He is. That's just true reality. He is savior. He is authority. He is holy. We don't make Jesus Lord and savior of our lives. He is the Lord and savior. And we have to just come under his lordship and all the implications of that. We follow him is the way the gospel writers put it. So what happens when we see God like this, when we see a God that's outside of our categories, outside of all our boxes that we try to keep God in all the time, where the hem of his robe fills the little boxes that we try to keep God in. What happens when he just, those boxes just go away? Like there's no boxes. What happens? Well, what happens with Isaiah? And I think what happens to us as well is we were undone. We're completely undone. We, we see actually that we're unclean. This actually happens throughout the scriptures when, when some servant of God is in the midst of the holiness of God, they are undone. They fall on the ground. They take off their shoes. They turn to Jesus and say, depart from me, I'm an unclean man. Because we realize in the, in, in, in the presence of beauty and holiness and perfection, we are unclean worms. We're like, as Francis taught our church last week where we're like these demodexes. I don't even want to bring that picture up again, but you know what I'm talking about. I know this doesn't help our self-image much if that we've been all probably been working on during COVID, right? But encountering the holiness of God makes us feel like a worm in some ways. It makes us feel filthy, stupid, selfish, undone. Why? Because of the gap. Because of the gap of who we are and the holiness of God. That gap we realize is unbridgeable. And we realize actually just how small and unholy we are. And this is exactly what happened to Isaiah. Isaiah verse four, at the sound of their voices, the doorpost of shook and the temple filled with smoke. And he says, woe to me, I am ruined. And he realizes I'm so unclean. I have unclean lips and actually everyone around me I, have, I live amongst the people of unclean lips and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. We live in a, in a world right now where there's a lot of pride going around. A lot of people thinking that they know. There's a lot of people thinking, well, this is my resume. This is what I've done. This is what I can do. I can do this. I can do that. I'm, and there's this like, kind of like this boasting, this pride, but we're in the midst of God. There's none of that. Everyone is made low. Isaiah realizes that he doesn't measure up morally. He realizes that he actually does have nothing to offer God. Actually, the very thing, the very best thing Isaiah can offer God, his lips, because he's a prophet, are even unclean. 
Having heard the angels use their lips to purely worship God for who he is, Isaiah knows that his lips, having been used to praise himself at times, to put others down and generally serve his own needs, could never be used in God's holy service. He says, I am unclean. There's something about when we see the holiness of God, we realize that every single part of our life has unholiness in it. Isaiah also realized that God didn't need him. God's not dependent upon us. Not only was it unnecessary that Isaiah should be a servant of God, he wasn't even worthy to be a servant of God. Isaiah sees his situation as being so helpless and and hopeless in the presence of God that he doesn't even bother to ask for cleansing or even deliverance. He just says, woe is me, and just confesses. That's all he does. I'm just unclean. He doesn't say, help me, save me, deliver me, heal me, cleanse me. He just goes, I'm unclean, period. In a story, just confession, that's it. But what happens? What happens is that Isaiah underestimates the grace of God. That's what happens. Verse six, then one of the seraphim flew to me with a a live coal in his hand, which he had taken from the tongs from the altar. And with it, he touched my mouth and said, see, this has touched your lips your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. Now, I wanna get something straight about God's holiness that, that might, I mean, you might know this, but it might throw you off a bit if you don't know it. We have this idea that God's holiness means that he does not come near anything unholy. That God is so holy that he can't be near unholiness. We even have language around this. We say God cannot be in the presence of anything unholy. And so when we are at our worst, when we sin, we think and we believe that God is running away from us saying, oh my gosh, you're so dirty and nasty and disgusting. Ah, I got to run away. You're dirty, you're dirty, you know, like germs, COVID, ah, you know, that sort of thing. But that's wrong. That's not the picture we get of God's holiness in the Bible. I know, I I promise, I'm not boarding on, on blasphemy here. Listen, in Genesis chapter three, Adam and Eve sin. And what does God do? Does he run away? No. God goes after them. He calls for them. Many of us have this idea that life is about trying to find God. But what if we have it backwards? What if life isn't really about us trying to find God, but it's God trying to find us? I mean, who's hiding in Genesis chapter three? Not God. God was trying to find Adam and Eve. Jesus came to seek and save that which was lost. It's God going after us. God is not afraid of our uncleanness. He goes after us to make us whole. See, the holiness of God doesn't mean God runs from things that are unholy. God's holiness means that he runs to things that are unholy to make them holy. And we're the ones hiding. See, what happens here in Isaiah is such a turn in the story of God In biblical theology, this is such a huge progression of how God saves. See, up to this point in God's story, you have to make yourself ritualistically clean in order to come into the presence of God so they would wash themselves and cleanse themselves and offer sacrifices. And and if you were unclean and you went around anything that was clean or holy, the thing unclean would make the thing clean unclean. Does that make sense? So things that are dirty make things clean, unclean. And so you would have to ritually make yourself clean to enter God's presence. And not just that, but if you were clean 
and just ritualistically clean and you came into the presence of someone unclean, you yourself became unclean. But here, the thing clean or holy touches something unclean, Isaiah's lips, and makes them clean. Do you see what I'm saying? Here is where we get a glimpse into God's future holiness. Let me explain that. In Mark chapter one, Jesus meets a man with leprosy. Leprosy was not just a disease, it was a sentence. You couldn't touch anyone, nor could a leper touch anyone who had leprosy. Because no matter how holy someone or something was, someone with leprosy would transfer unholiness to whatever was holy. So you can be really, really clean, the holiest person in the world, but if a leper touched you, you were unholy and unclean. So when Jesus met this man, this leper fell on his knees and said to Jesus, if you are willing, you can make me clean. The thing is, but lepers were not clean. You can make me clean. Not, not you can take away my leprosy. You can make me clean. And it says that filled with compassion, Jesus reached out and touched him and everyone gasped. Oh my gosh, you're not allowed to touch a leper. Now Jesus is supposed to be unclean, but that's not what happened. See, remember in the law, if you touch someone with leprosy, you became unclean, but that's not what happened here. Jesus transfers holiness to him, not the other way around. This is exactly what happens with Isaiah. Jesus touches this leper and he's made clean. And what we see in Isaiah and what we see in Jesus is this is how we are redeemed. This is how we're made clean clean. This is how when we're in the presence of God and we say we're unholy and we can't bridge that gap between who God is and his holiness and then who we are in on our unworthiness, our, our, we just know it. I don't have to like, we know it when we're in the presence of something beautiful and amazing, we feel small and not worthy. And what happens is Jesus, Jesus cleanses us. He makes us whole. He redeems us. He who is pure and holy touches that which is not. How can this happen? It's because Jesus took our sin upon himself. He took our unholiness. He, it says, who knew no sin became sin, that we can become the righteousness of God, that we can become holy, that we can become like God. And this is the gospel and this is what's so beautiful about Isaiah and the holiness of God. And we need this perspective. We do need this perspective of God is holy and God is on the throne and God is beautiful and he's unmovable and unshakable. But, but us, but us, but what do we do because we're so unclean? And the answer is, Jesus, would you touch us? Jesus, would you heal? That's the answer. And, I, and we might feel this way, even even in, uh, because the, the structures that we have in our life are not the same as they were seven months ago, maybe we've slipped. Maybe we have slipped in our own holiness. Maybe we've slipped into sin and habits that are so far from where we know we need to be or God wants us to be, and we don't know how to bridge that gap. We confess, I'm unclean. I'm a person who've used my mouth to boast and be prideful. I'm the one who's used these hands in sinful ways. These feet have rushed to sin. 
and to confess and to allow Jesus to heal, allow Jesus to touch us and make us whole, to make us clean. That's the hope of the gospel, um, and that's the promise of God. Let's pray. Lord, as we sit and meditate and ponder on your beauty and your holiness and your stability, we can't help but just even know our own sin and where we, there's a gap that we need to confess. And thank you, Jesus, that you hear our confession, that when we confess our sin, you are faithful and just to forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so, Lord, I pray that we go to you now and confess. Confess our sin, confess our brokenness, confess the gaps. And Lord, would you touch us with your healing, holy, cleansing power and restore us and cleanse us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.